Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 2 and stand for the reading of our text for the sermon this morning. <clears throat> I'm going to go back to 4. We're going to be taking up 10 through 22, but I'm going to go back to verse 4 and read from there. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day by day by their lawless deeds, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these... Like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he received rebuke for his own transgression. For a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. These are springs without water and mists driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them, and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire." This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You woke up on a nice sunny Sunday morning and wanted a pep talk at church. 
And the Lord gave us this passage. That's what the Lord has given to us, and hopefully you will be pepped up by the end of it. It's a very intense passage. Very intense from beginning to end. He doesn't relent. And so we return to chapter 2 of the Apostle Peter's second letter. We're smack dab in the middle of this uh, warning to the sheep about false teachers. Uh, The second half of verse 10 picks up and elaborates on the last two words of the phrase, the first phrase where the apostle said, God's judgment is kept for those false teachers who despise authority and stir other people up to do the same. That is one of the hallmarks of false teaching. They want sole authority, and they do so by denouncing all other authorities. Right? Getting others to despise authority. The reason this plays so well in Peoria is because, of, because our culture of radical egalitarianism hates authority. Right? Radical egalitarianism, feminism, whatever you want to call it, is, is systemically trying to oppose authority. And our, and our pride, our pride is more than happy to accept that kind of teaching. Because our hearts, we have the hearts of rebels ourselves. Now in our passage today, the Apostle Peter takes his warning up a notch, if that's possible, from where it's been the last two weeks I've preached on this. He's already said that God is keeping certain rebels for judgment. He's keeping them for judgment. But the Apostle is not solely interested in making that coming judgment clear. He wants the people of God, his flock, to be warned, to be warned, right? And to be able to recognize false teachers when they come into the church. So after saying that these false teachers despised authority, he digs down into more detail about what that looks like. He writes, daring, self-willed, They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. To be daring means to take risks. It is never the place of pastors or teachers or theologians to take risks, to be daring. That is not what you want from a pastor. It's not what you want from a theologian, right? They, those those people may feel pressure to do so so that they can get attention or so that they can make progress in academic circles, or so that they can get tenure. But the goal of pastors should not be to be daring. Never. Pastors should have no creative thoughts. Zero. They are merely to take the good deposit and bring it to another generation of believers. This is what God's Word says. Here it is. Let's talk about how to apply it in our situation. Pastors are not shock jocks or innovators. They are stewards of the mysteries of God, those things, those truths revealed in the Word of God. The Greek word translated here as self-willed, that second word in your translation, has as its root the the Greek word hedone, which is where we get the English word hedonism, right? So, Um, So better than self-willed, we could say that they're self-pleasing. 
These are men who are self-pleasing. The false teacher does not have a selfless bone in his body. He lives to please himself and not to serve or please others. But that is not, as you know, the example that we have in our own Savior. Right? Romans 15 says, Now we who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. For each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself. But false teachers, that's all they're into, self-pleasing. They work to please themselves. False teachers have egos as big as the world, and all is well with them when everybody is working to please them. They insist on that kind of orbit around them. This bears no resemblance to our selfless Savior, Jesus Christ, who could have called on legions of angels, right, to annihilate his enemies, but instead chose to die. Selflessness. Next, the arrogance of the false teachers is demonstrated in that there is no power they will not make light of. They like to make light of other powers. False teachers think that nothing is holy. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, it says. Now, what are these angelic majesties? Well, because of the next verse, I think we can readily say that these are fallen angels. These are the fallen angels, okay? The text of verse 11 makes a distinction between these angelic majesties and the angels that do not bring a reviling judgment against those fallen angels. So what this text is saying is exactly what the text of Jude 8 and 9 says. In that text, we learn that the archangel Michael, what would the archangel Michael not do? Well, he would not blaspheme the devil. And that's the word it uses there, and that's the same word that's used here, to blaspheme angelic majesties, to blaspheme evil angels. The archangel Michael would not blaspheme the devil. It says this, Yet in the same way these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties, But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now think of that for a moment. To revile authority is so bad, right? This is Peter's point. To revile authority is so bad Railing against power is so bad that Scripture uses the example of an archangel being unwilling to rail against the devil. You would think that of anybody who deserves to be railed against, it would be the devil. And yet the the archangel Michael won't do it, and it's written for us as an example. Our passage makes the point that false teachers do the opposite of that all the time. There is no circumspection in the face of power, no fear of anything, no sense of the sword that will be raised over them if they belittle powerful, even evil, and powerful creatures. I mean, it's a mind-boggling statement. There's a way that we should properly respect 
though not reverence, evil angelic majesties. We do not fear them as we fear God, but we do respect them in the sense that they are powerful and would do us harm, right? False teachers being arrogant and self-pleasing do not have that kind of filter for what they say. They don't have that kind of governor because it plays well to revile evil powers, right? It plays well. It makes for good TV. False teachers... Well, they revile and rail against evil forces, not stopping to consider the example of the archangel Michael and even and especially the example of Jesus Christ before his accusers. Jesus was silent before evil. And the evil in that circumstance happened to be not angels, but men. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. Angels are more powerful than men and even still they do not rail against or revile those other angelic fallen majesties. False teachers on the other hand do. They are, Peter writes in verse 12, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed reviling where they have no knowledge. And they have no knowledge, so not knowing what to teach, they giddily oppose that which they should quietly fear. I think this is a remarkable description of false teachers um, that I have witnessed. You know those internet sensations that get a platform and begin teaching people that God didn't really mean what God said in the scriptures. In the end, they teach the doctrines of demons and they do not think at all about the fact that in so doing, they are opposing the one omnipotent power in all the universe, God himself. But again, their judgment is made clear by this scripture. And that should make us both fear to go our own way and be relieved that these false teachers will not always afflict God's people and his church. Verse 12, these will in the destruction of these cre- those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. So just as the, the fallen angels are destined for a lake of fire and eternal bonds by God's powerful hand, so these false teachers will be condemned for leading God's little ones astray. The description of the false teachers continues in verse 13. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. In other words, living for their own sensuality, as the passage says earlier, they are unashamed and live their sinful lifestyles openly, out in the open, not fearing God, and... Um, not being aware or fearing his coming judgment. Goes on and says, They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way they have gone astray. I mean, the apostle Peter is hot as he writes this. Apostle Peter seems kind of angry, doesn't he? 
Yes, and that holy anger has arisen because he is concerned for his sheep and these false teachers are wolves who are attacking his sheep. He's not about to play nice with those who are, as it says in the middle of 14, enticing unstable souls. Let's think about that for a little bit. It is the weaker sheep that get killed by the wolves, right? I mean, thinking about actual sheep and actual wolves. It is the weaker sheep that get killed by the wolves. So also in the church, it is the malnourished sheep, the unstable sheep that fall for the schemes of false teachers. Now that's it's kind of an obvious statement to make. Um, the susceptible sheep are those who think they are strong, get this, and so they do not avail themselves of the, for example, the teaching ministries of the church. All of which are meant to move you from weak to strong, right? The strong sheep are the ones who, thinking themselves weak, get themselves to prayer meetings, to fellowship meals, to Bible studies, to worship services, because they know themselves and they respect the power of those angelic majesties and they know they need to be strengthened continually. They know it. And ironically, that's the strong sheep. The strong sheep are always eating the good feed, right? The strong sheep are always taking the vitamins of the faith. It's the weak sheep who think they're strong who leave off pursuing the word. Calvin writes, by the metaphor of baiting, baiting unstable souls, he reminds the faithful to beware of their hidden and deceitful arts, for he compares their impostures to hooks which may catch the unwary to their destruction. By adding unstable souls, he shows the reason for caution, that is, when we have not struck firm roots in faith and in the fear of the Lord, and he intimates at the same time, that they have no excuse who suffer themselves to be baited or lured by such flatteries. For this must have been ascribed to their levity. Let there then be a stability of faith, and we shall be safe from the artifices of the ungodly. Right? A stability of faith. And then we're going to be free from these, these the wiles of the devil. So, he, notice he uses the word bait unstable souls. Are you taking the bait? Right? Are you taking the bait? Is there some teaching of God that just rubs you the wrong way? And you know there's somebody out there, there's some, there's some female theologian, author, that can feed you exactly what you want to hear. It'll be sophisticated, it'll be nuanced, it will be packaged well, and it will be poison to you, right? Is there some teaching of God that rubs you the wrong way? Um, you can find a teacher that will assure you that God is wrong and you are right, um, but they would never put it so starkly, will they? They will talk about the proper interpretation of a passage and the subtle knowledge it takes to to you know, understand the original languages and the necessity of bringing philosophy to bear upon the scripture and their interpretation. And then they'd go and talk about the original intent 
and the prejudices perhaps that Rabbi Paul had when he wrote, and they'll say other such things as that, but they'll never just come out and, and, and say they think that what Paul wrote about marriage is wrong and foolish. But that's what they're teaching. They will make you think that you have a sophisticated knowledge and that to believe anything other than what they are teaching is, well, unbecoming, it's stupid. And the unstable souls in the church will take the bait. Pastors always feel in competition with false teachers on the internet. Do you know that? Do you know that I feel that tension all the time? That there are wolves circling our people all the time on the internet, and I'm in a fight with them. I'm in a fight with them. And, and they're way more attractive, they're way more sophisticated, they're way smarter, they have way much more money, they have way much more of a platform to do all of this nefarious work than I have. And, and they get way, much, way more of your time. I mean, if you're listening to their podcast, they're getting six, seven hours a week. I just get 40 minutes. The unstable souls in the church will take the bait of false teachers and they'll be so relieved that they now do not have to be worried about their homosexually tempted friends. That's fine. It's good. It's biblical for them to pursue their homosexual temptations. They won't have to be worried about the eternal destiny of those who make different personal choices than themselves. The unfixed souls are the ones who will fall for this and you know what they will do? They will think the words, the ethics, the power of man is much better than the words, the ethics, and the power of God. That's what the end point will be. The apostle uses Balaam as an example of someone who, despising the word of God, needed to be rebuked by an ass. Think of that, loving the wages of unrighteousness. God used a donkey to rebuke him. I mean, it's the most glorious rebuke of all of Scripture because of that. A donkey talks to him. What was Balaam's heir? Well, we read about it in the book of Numbers. Balak hired Balaam to do some cursing of Israel, and Balaam was ready to do it until the Spirit of the Lord forced him to bless. Now, there may be some confusion in, in your mind about this. Didn't Balaam do what God wanted him to do? Verse 20 of uh, Numbers, I don't have the chapter here. Um, God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, Rise up and go with them, but only the word which I speak to you, you shall speak. So God comes to Balaam and says, I'm going to give you words, go with the men. Numbers 22, 21. So Balaam arose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the elders of Moab. But God was angry because he was going. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. Now he was riding on his donkey and the two servants were with him. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, the donkey turned off from the way and went into the field. But Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back into the way. So you may be thinking, 
God told him to go and he went. How then can God find fault with him? Well, what we know from the text is that God was angry with Balaam for going. The text explicitly says that. And that that probably indicates that Balaam's actions were not in accord with God's call for Balaam to bless Israel. And because the New Testament is the definitive commentary on the Old Testament, we would be right to make that determination from this passage in 2 Peter. We also learn more about the character of Balaam because of an incident that took place in Israel in the city of Peor where Israel and Peor bowed down to the gods of the Moabites and joined themselves to their women, all of that, including the execution of the leaders of Israel, is recorded in Numbers 25. But there's no mention of Balaam in that passage. But in Numbers 31, we learn that all of that cursing, all of that Israel going a a whoring, happens by the advice of, of Balaam. Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. So Balaam was bad news. As so the apostle uses him as an example in this passage. He's an example of a false teacher drawing away God's people into sensuality which is exactly what false teachers were trying to do to the people Peter was writing to and precisely what they would have them do today. Now, keep going. Stick with me. Open your Bibles again. You've set them to your sides. Pick them up. Open them up. Verse 17. The description of the false teachers continues in verse 17 with very poetic language. Peter writes, These are springs without water mists driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. In other words, false teachers make a great display like a spring or a storm, but they have no substance, no water. What good is a spring without water? Is it really even a spring? It's only a spring in name only. But these words of the Apostle Peter, he does not want to be mealy-mouthed, he does not want to be soft about false teachers. Black darkness has been reserved for them. They will know the fierce wrath of Almighty God for all eternity. That's right. They will know His wrath for all eternity. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. I think we can safely say that God's anger toward those who enter into his household to afflict the baptized is fierce. Right? There will be no space for any kind of mercy without repentance. Verse 18, the Holy Spirit continues his relentless assault on false teachers. They speak out arrogant words. They practice flattery so that the unstable, the unprepared, those wanted, you know, the affections of anyone are enticed. They tap into your fleshliness, your sensuality. Notice what verse 19 says, false teachers promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. I mean, that's one of the, the 
most common techniques of false teachers. They're always promising freedom. Freedom. Freedom in the sense of being true to yourself. Freedom in the sense of living an authentic life. Freedom to do what feels right. (coughs) But they're actually selling bondage to base desires. As I've said before, false teachers do what they do because they want to satisfy their lusts. And so all they have to do is assure that those lusts are in some sense God's desire for you. I have them. You should should have that freedom too. You have same-sex desires? Well, did you have any choice in the matter? Don't you think that those desires fit into a biblical sexual ethic? Just don't act on them? There's nothing wrong with the desires, and that, dear brothers and sisters, becomes a way station for the next step, which is to point out the foolishness of resisting God-given desires. That is the, the trajectory of the Revoice Project, but those who oppose her with the vehemence demonstrated here by the Apostle Peter are denounced as meanies and ignorant. It goes on, it says this, For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. What is Satan telling you is perfectly fine that you know is ungodly? Perhaps Satan has said that a man's got to rest sometimes. And so before you know it, that man becomes lazy. Right? And before you know it, he's hatching in his mind a theology of rest that goes beyond a one in Sabbath, one in seven Sabbath, to a general disposition of rest, of eating, of feasting. Right? A general disposition of, of ease. And before you know it, he's also jobless and living off his wife's talent. That man has been enslaved to his rest. Now, he has the theological framework to justify his soft body's slothfulness, but he's, he's enslaved. He's now enslaved. The false teacher has mixed him up and, and has, has fixed the straps of a straitjacket while whispering in his ear that this is truly enjoying freedom. Do you want me to stop? Because the passage is not over yet. I mean, it's relentless, okay? Stick with me. The false teachers have a fiery, deep place in hell. And that is shown in this passage. In comes crashing verses 20 to 22, and it slaps us with some force. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. This is the climax of this passage about false teachers. And the Holy Spirit's final warning is to say that one who has known of Jesus, one who has known of Jesus Christ, one who has professed faith in Jesus Christ, 
who has at one point pursued holiness in their life, if they return to the vomit of their former manner of life that they have left, they are in a worse position than if they had never known anything about the triune, one true living God. Now that's a powerful deterrent, isn't it? How many of you were saved out of terrible sin? How many of you were saved out of terrible sin? I mean, everybody has to raise their hands, right? How many of you pursued sensuality? How many of you were a drunkard? How many of you were tempted by homosexuality? How many of you hated people? How many of you loved getting high? How many of you habitually stole from your parents, stole from your friends? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. That's our list. But you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. And what the Holy Spirit is saying in 2 Peter is that if you head back to those things that you left and become an advocate for them, remember this is about false teachers and their condemnation. If you go back to those sins you left, and become an advocate for those sins, you are in a terrible position. The effeminate man who left behind his effeminacy for a time because God's word convicted him that it was sin, who then returns to his effeminacy and teaches others to do the same, well, it would have been better for him if he had never known anything about Jesus Christ. False teachers, those who advocate for and promote what they once considered sin, are doomed. It is one thing to fall into sin and have to repent. We all know that experience, right? It's one thing to fall into sin after you've become a believer or you've served him for 50 years, to fall into sin and terrible sin and to repent. It is quite another thing to fall into sin, to refuse to repent, and then to teach others to do as you are doing. For this reason, James writes, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many ways. So those who advocate for and promote what they once considered to be sin, let me repeat are in a special league of their own. This must be said at this point, and I'm stealing it from Calvin. There is little hope for any covenant child, for any Christian, any minister, any elder who does not renounce this world. The renunciation of the world. Did you hear me, children? You must renounce the world. And it is your calling to, as a follower of Jesus Christ, to renounce the world 
and the world is worth renouncing because it is ugly. Isn't it, Zeke? It's ugly. You were there when the feminists were afflicting us while we tried to save babies who were just enjoying their mother's wombs that morning. That's the world, and that's what I mean by using the the word world, the sinful ways of mankind. Calvin writes, by naming the pollutions of the world, the Apostle Peter shows that we roll in filth and are wholly polluted until we renounce the world. Until we renounce the world. Another apostle of the Lord put it this way, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. And still another apostle put it, said this, Romans 12, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, we must renounce the world or instill grasping to what is corrupt. We will find ourselves creeping away from God and despising His holiness. Until you get to the point where you want to live your life solely to please God. You'll be in a position of trying to justify your worldliness rather than being grieved by your remaining corruption. Right? So in renouncing the world, we are really doing nothing other than putting God above everything else. We are saying, I see true glory in God and you can have the corrupt glories of this earth. The false teacher, though, the false teacher would never say anything like that. The false teacher, though, just will not allow his grasp to, on the world to lighten. Having lived once for God and pursued the things of God, he now fights against them and teaches others to do the same. And God is warning us in this passage, God is warning you, warning every pastor, warning every Sunday school teacher, every theologian, every man, woman, child, that to do that puts you in an awful place where you may search for repentance and never find it like Esau. But you say you sin. You sin and you are worried about whether you are in this position of having lied or lived for your flesh. Then having come to faith and then returning to your flesh. What makes me different than false teachers? I've been a dog returning to my vomit. Well, here's how Calvin answers that question. He says, the faithful also do indeed sin. We sin. We sin terribly, but as they allow not dominion to sin, they do not fall away from the grace of God, nor do they renounce the profession of sound doctrine which they have once embraced. For they are not to be deemed conquered while they strenuously resist the flesh in its lust. In other words, here's his answer. 
that we sin is not an indication that we fall into this condemned category as the Apostle Peter has outlined. If that were the case, no man would be saved because we all sin after we come to faith. It is those who sin and stop resisting that sin and stop pursuing repentance. They become apologists for their new life of sin. That is an indication that you have fallen under the condemnation laid out here for false teachers. Repentance is the up and down pursuit of holiness. Repentance in the up and down pursuit of holiness is the proof, the proof that God is at work in you. So don't be like a dog that returns. <laughs> I mean, you've, we've all seen dogs lick up vomit. It's terrible, right? It's gross. We've seen dogs eat their own feces. It's terrible, right? Dogs are disgusting things, but they're cute, right? Don't, don't be like a dog that vomits and licks up that stuff from the carpet. Don't be like a pig that gets washed up and is somewhat cute and then immediately flops into that mire. You are, if you, you are doing that if you come to love that which God hates. You are that if you come to live in a way that displeases God. You are especially that if you drag others with you into your apostasy. And so let me come to a close with this. There's a lot of text, a lot of statements. I just barely touched the surface. If you are Christ's, children, listen. If you are Christ, you will one day know how glorious it is to live in his presence. You will live in that world of love. You will rest peacefully in that world of love. And you will wonder why the wickedness of the world ever seems so enticing to you. The key, dear brothers and sisters, of the Christian life is to have such a deep knowledge of God, a deep knowledge of Christ and of the Spirit, that the temptations of the world seem as nothing to you, that they're not strong, that they're, they can't overtake you. How do you come to that knowledge? How do you get that knowledge? It's by the Spirit at work in you. Ask God for His Spirit to work in you. Find your joy in the triune God. Love holiness and teach others about what God requires. You know, fight through the darkness of the world and come into the light. Fight through it. I am the light of the world, said Jesus. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's glory. That's glorious. Amen?